most victims of sexual abuse delay disclosure. We know that. They don't By have, how long? Four decades. Is no the kidding. 40 years? 40 years. The most common disclosure happens when the victim of that abuse is in their 50s. So think about what the trauma of the abuse and then living with that burden for four decades Mm -mm. before you tell anybody. Well, hello again, everyone, you difference makers out there. This is Dr. Jim Hoven, your host of the Ramos Law Difference Makers podcast. And every week, it's another guest doing amazing work with amazing people. And today is no different. Today, I have attorney Bobby Click with me, and he is actually going to shed light on something that many of us never even think of until it's too late. And the topic today may have a little bit of um, bite to it. It may be a little uncomfortable for some people to hear, but it's necessary. And what we're going to talk today about is abuse in the in the world of sports, organized sports, organized uh, organizations around sports, that kind of thing. And and uh, as an attorney, Bobby understands this concept very well. It's his focus. In fact, he has a company called Safe Sport Matters that we're going to talk about. He's got an incredible background in this. And so once you hear this message, it's going to make you think differently about how your child participates in sports, things to look for, cues that you might want to take before or after your kid's been put on a team, that kind of stuff. So I do not want to delay this this uh, message getting out any longer. So without further ado, welcome, Mr. Bobby Click. Thanks for coming. No, it's great to be here. I really appreciate it. I love the podcast. I love the opportunity to get, like what you said, such an important message out to a group of people. So thank you for having me this morning. Absolutely. I, I got to ask, um, as an attorney, you can do any kind of law. I mean, law has, there, there's a thousand different types of law that you can do. So you're going through law school. And at what point did you decide that that this was the topic that needed your help, that this was the problem that you're going to jump into and try to solve? Wow, that's a great question. It took about a decade, right? So I bounced around. So I graduated all the way back in 2011 from the University of Alabama. Roll, Roll Tide. There you go. <laughs> By the way, before we go, how does it feel about Saban? What's oh. what's the what's the word down there than the feeling? Is that like you're losing something? How's that? Because I wanted to talk to someone from Alabama since I heard the news. It hurts, man. It just hurts. Saban is, I mean, he's a phenomenal coach, right? Like. I've been an Alabama fan my entire life. Well before we went on this run with Saban, I was in college down there in undergrad. We had, you know, we were going six and six, seven and five, you know, the records weren't great and all of a sudden it shifted. But one of the great things about Saban is not only was he just like a stalwart in the football world, he was a stalwart in the community as well. So being from Tuscaloosa, you know, we had some massive tornadoes that came through in 2011 that just did tons of damage and Saban and his wife Miss Terry really got involved in the community so it's it's tough right you're not only losing this pillar of the football world you're losing this pillar of the community as well still think he'll be involved down there but yeah it it just hurts as a fan and as someone who just loves you know Tuscaloosa and Alabama but look he gave us 17 like fantastic years so for me it's like kudos to save and can't ask for anything more i hope he enjoys retirement because if anybody earned it it certainly nick Saban did (laughs) i love that well thanks for that little interlude because i I was fascinated by hearing the news shocked me you know that was a crazy coach weekend as it turns out with belichick and 
uh, Saban and of course uh, up in Seattle with Pete Carroll. But anyway, that's Absolutely. for another topic. We can do that one another time. Um, so going back, you're, you're 10 years outside of college, bouncing around, doing your thing as a lawyer, and then what happens? Yeah, so you know, I had started my career as a public defender in Alabama, which is unique because you know, public defense work in the South is really difficult. And Alabama is a unique, at least when I got out of college, is because it did not have a statewide public defender system like what you see in Colorado and a lot of other states. So even before I graduated, I had accepted a job with the Tuscaloosa County Public Defender's Office, which was really the only public defender's office in the state. Every other county handled appointed work for criminal defendants by you know, either appointments or contracts, things of that nature, right? They didn't have a dedicated office. I did that work for about three years and it really set the tone for my career of, I wanted to make an impact, right? Like I'm a first you know, generation college graduate, let alone first you know, lawyer in the family. And when I was in law school, when I was graduating, it was like, I wanna be a lawyer to make a difference, right? That's, that's really what pulled me to law. And that's what's pulled me to the public defender's office. So I did that for a number of years and then moved into private practice and never could find the fulfillment that I got while I was really serving the public in my, you know, really important in Alabama. So started looking around for positions and ultimately found this organization in Denver I had never heard of called the U.S. Center for Safe Sport. Right? I was like, I don't know what this is. Most people don't, right? It's a, it was a nonprofit still going today based here in Denver that had federal authorization. So there's legislation on the books that gives this nonprofit in Denver authority to investigate allegations of misconduct in the Olympic movement. And I'm like, I love Denver. Colorado's fantastic, right? Like, I, I mean, being from Alabama, I could leave the snow, Yeah, <laughs> but it's a, it's a hard place to be, right? And so I, I came out here and thought, you know what I want to do? I want to marry two passions of mine, sports, being from the South, sports are just integral to our community. Law is what I've been doing for the past seven or eight years. And I'm like, this is an opportunity to bring the two together. And so I moved out here with the family to become an associate legal counsel with the center. So you got the job first yep. and then you came out? Came out to Denver, got a look behind the curtain, right? Meaning I got to see allegations of abuse and the the amount of abuse that was occurring in sport and just never thought about it that way. And that was it, right? That set me down this path where I don't think I'll ever be able to do anything else. Like wow. this is what I want to do. Like I said, when I can have the opportunity to take skills that I've learned over the years as an attorney with a sports passion and now an understanding of the need bridges those together and here I am and that's what I'll be doing for as long as I can do it. I love that. Let's talk about the need for a minute. So when when I was looking through your background and kind of checking out what how, how you've gotten to this point, I was interested with this U.S. Center for Sport, right, in the Olympic movement. And I'm like, okay, what level of athletes are we talking about? Yeah. Are these Olympic team athletes? Are these pre-Olympic athletes? I know you got club teams that funnel up to Olympic teams. So define the scope of work, if you will, and the problem. Absolutely. So let's start with the U.S. Center for Safe Sport, right? Again, based here in Denver, fantastic organization. They're over the Olympic movement, which a lot of people, when I say Olympic movement, they immediately go Olympic athletes in Tokyo, in Paris, in L.A. in 28. That's the pinnacle, right? Mm -hmm. Those are the Olympic athletes. But the Olympic movement is so much broader. 
it encompasses 10 to 12 million people in the United States. It is million millions, right? It is massive. I use this as an example. This podcast will probably outlive me and my seven-year-old son isn't going to appreciate this, but I use him as an example all the time. My seven-year-old son plays soccer. He's a seven-year-old playing soccer. He's not, you know, shown the, you know, any like Olympic ability yet. Maybe he'll have it. I don't know. But he is technically within the Olympic movement, even though he is playing grassroots soccer in Aurora, Colorado, because the club he plays with is a part of U.S. soccer. So understand the scope is massive. Is it there is. any sports not included? Like football isn't in the Olympics, but is is tackle and or flag football included in this, for example? Not within the work of the U.S. Center for Safe Sport, right? And we'll talk about how that's where I identified some gaps where maybe my expertise could help some of these organizations outside the movement where they had the center as a resource. So when you think about the Olympic movement, it's about 50 to 54 sports. It it, it can ebb and flow because sports will come out or, you know, in or mm -hmm. out of the movement. But there are 50 plus sports and, you know, the big ones you think of, the gymnastics, the hockey, the soccer, you know, then there are other sports you may not think of like table tennis, right? Racquetball, things like that. Lacrosse is coming in. So it's, it's a massive, you know, spectrum of sports all within under this Olympic umbrella and the U S center for safe sport, which is exactly what brought me out here, which is really what started to fuel my passion for sports safety is this watchdog organization over all of these, you know, um, sports. And it's, you know, it's super important work. And you see the examples of this at the most egregious levels, I would imagine, like the the uh, ortho guy that was working with the gymnastics team, and there's a documentary about it, and you know you see the the dude over at Penn State Absolutely. that went through that stuff with those athletes. When when you, as you say, look behind the curtain, what was it that you saw? I saw too much, right? Meaning there was too much abuse and a lack of recognition. And, you know, you bring up Nasser, you know, from Michigan, you bring up Jerry Sandusky from Penn State, right? They got all of this attention because it was just absolutely heinous acts, hundreds of young athletes abused, you know, and it's unacceptable. And it finally brought light to a problem that has existed before and continues to exist today, right? And so that was what I saw. I saw too much, right? More than I ever knew existed within the sporting world. And what I tell people is with sports, they're so important to us, right? As a community, as a culture across the this country, across the globe, we just have a difficult time looking past the good. Mm. And what I mean by that is it has such a positive impact on so many people. And I was lucky enough to say, I love sports as a child. I played sports, you know, going up through college. I still keep in contact with a lot of the coaches that I had as a kid had extremely positive impacts on me, right? I still, you know, every Saturday I'm watching Alabama football. Every Sunday I'm watching Detroit Lions football. You know, I love it. It's hard to marry that concept with these sports that we love so much that are so important to us can have such a terrible impact on others, right? Not everybody's as lucky as I was. And the center really forced me to come to terms with that. And yeah. so now that's turned into my mission is like, hey, we've got to acknowledge the good and the bad, right? Stop, we can't just stop at the good. We've got to acknowledge and understand that the bad can happen and bring these two together because it's not mutually exclusive. I will tell you, I've seen some of the worst stories, the worst allegations, the worst abuse in sport, 
but I still love sport because I understand how much of a positive impact it can have. You know, there's been a lot of studies, a lot of research out there about, you know, talking to parents and, you know, more than 80% of parents that were polled said, Sports has a positive impact on my child's physical well-being, right? We know getting up, getting active has a huge positive impact. More than 70% said it had a positive impact on their mental well-being, right? Those numbers are great. That's 70% mental health increase, you know, positive impact, 80 plus percent physical impact. We need to understand that, Mm -hmm. but also acknowledge that we can do more in ensuring that everybody that participates in sport has a positive experience, right? An experience like I had, an experience that when I think about when I was, you know, 10, 15, 18, I, I'll smile, right? I'd be like, oh, I love yeah. soccer. I, I, my teammates are, and I are still friends. Like, I love it. That's what we need to move towards, right? And we can do that by working towards abuse prevention and a, and a lot of different things that, you know, that we can talk about. So, so Bobby, what do you think um, is a basic descriptor of, of the scope that defines abuse because what we think of and what we've already alluded to is the is the most heinous and the most egregious of sexual abuse but i got to imagine that there's there's a continuum where it's all abuse and none of it's better than the other but it's just seen different for example remember bobby knight throwing the chairs and doing smacking kids around and yelling at them like some coaches yell and they get the best of their athletes, but where does that cross the line? Is it physical? Like what are the types of abuse that we can wrap our heads around? That's a great question, right? And you already touched on one and that's sexual abuse. And that tends to be the most black and white, Mm -hmm. right? Very rarely, if ever, do I have someone who doesn't understand that a coach who's 35 year old having any type of sexual contact relations or conversations with a minor athlete is inappropriate, right? I don't, yeah. that's an agreed upon, right? That's, that's easy. That's black and white. Let, let me stop you there. Cause this is interesting. Um, you mentioned a minor. What about if this happens and how far does this go? What in college, if they get to not to be a minor, now they're 19, 20, 21, maybe 22, they redshirted that kind yeah. of thing or in the pros. Like you have male coaches, like is there become a, a consensual thing on this particular topic where abuse is is or is cloudy? What does that look like? That's no, wild to me. That is a fantastic question. And that is where I, if you were to ask me as a sports safety professional, relationships within sport where there is a power imbalance, right? Where there is a mm. coach who has a power over, you know, it's all to one side over an athlete. That is an area that is... A potential for abuse right so the center for example i was involved in writing the u.s center for safe sports code of conduct it's called the safe sport code and it prohibits relationships between athletes and coaches even if they're both adults because that power imbalance if it exists there's too much of a potential for misconduct and abuse. So the black and white, absolutely adult to minor. I will tell you that even adult to adult in the sporting world where there is a power imbalance, where one party, like a coach, has authority and power over somebody like an athlete, that control, that power is too much. And we have to look at that as well. There should, you know, the center made a rebuttable presumption to use some legalese to say there's a rebuttable presumption that this is essentially misconduct, that there that there is a power imbalance and that this shouldn't occur. So yeah, so I 100% agree. That is a little bit of the gray area. Yeah. You know, people outside the sporting world will say, these are two consenting adults, right? Two consenting adults stay out of their business. Mm. And what I say is like, I, I understand, like I come from that, but I've seen too many times where that position of authority 
is used to influence, potentially manipulate, uh, you know, that athlete or that individual with less authority, less power into a relationship, right? You think about in sports, coaches often control scholarships, even for adults. They control access to sponsors. They, you have coaches who are very successful getting individuals to compete better than they've ever competed, right? You're not going to do better with Coach A. You're only going to succeed if you're with me. That's too much. So, you know, my professional opinion has always been that we have to look very, very carefully, even at relationships between adults and adults, if there is that power imbalance. What a great answer. And so now just to murk it up just a little (laughs) bit, what about as you go, we'll call it down the food chain. Maybe it's an assistant coach. Maybe it's a trainer. Maybe it's an equipment person. Do they not now have that same authority over as what a coach so that lessens the responsibility of adult to adult thing obviously it's absolutely minor to adult don't care who you are just can't do it absolutely but is there a gradient of what's considered someone with affluence and power over the other one 100 percent, right i think it's a totality of the circumstances again to use the wonderful legalese that we lawyers like you have to look at everything <laughs> yeah. right and a head coach it's easier right they have they may be the end all be all of that sports team right an assistant coach though may still be able to exert significant influence or control right as you go down that food chain, so to speak, as that control lessens, as those, you know, that power, that influence isn't as much, yeah, there is less likely of a chance that they're going to be able to use that power imbalance to influence or manipulate. So yeah, so you have less of that potential, right? The idea here is no one wants to micromanage the lives of adults or or minors, right? But what we do wanna is use the information we have to create the safest environment possible. And what we know is as that power imbalance, the bigger it is, the more of a risk that there is for influence, control, and potential abuse, even from adult to adult. So now that we've stepped through that landmine let's go back to what we were talking about with the the scope of abuse so that's the that's at one end how how does it look going down from there or across from there yeah across is a good way to put it right and i will say the three buckets of of abuse that we typically think of in the sports world or in just the abuse world we talked about one right sexual abuse the others are going to be referred to as physical abuse which you know you think of as physical, right? You're hitting, you're punching, you're doing too much emotional or physical abuse, right? And I mean, emotional or psychological abuse. So I call it ENP. I say we've got sexual misconduct, then we have ENP, we have emotional and or physical. Those are the three buckets that I refer to. And those are the gray area, right? Exactly what you were talking about. Emotional abuse is, you know, one of the most difficult, one of the most underreported, because it's the most, one of the most difficult to define, right? It varies not only from sport to sport, Because what you do in football may be different than what is necessary in table tennis, right? Like it may be, you need to go run three miles, you know, in this amount of time for football to get ready. I don't know that that would be appropriate in table tennis, right? So it varies from sport to sport. It can vary from level to level, meaning a 10-year-old amateur athlete versus a 17-year-old who's preparing for college or the Olympics, right? We refer, you know, you hear about tough coaching. It's a moving target. It's a hundred percent a moving target. And so that is where it is very difficult. And what I, what I tell people all the time is exactly what you were hinting at is there are all types of abuse. I don't like to refer to one as more severe than the other, Mm -hmm. because when I was at the center looking behind the curtain, I saw what happened to young girls who were emotionally 
abused by their coach. I saw the eating disorders. I saw the body image issues. I saw the lifelong trauma that came along with emotional abuse, right? That had no sexual elements to it. The same thing is true about physical abuse. So I think for us, we have to come to terms with all of it, but it is so difficult with the emotional abuse, especially, but also with physical, because there it's not as black and white as the adult to minor of the sexual world. It, 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 it varies from sport to sport, from level to level. But just because it's a difficult thing to define doesn't mean we can't define it or we shouldn't try. Right. And that's where I call on not only the sports safety professionals, but the sports experts, right? The athletes, the coaches who exist in that sport, who want to move this forward and say, we've got to come together. We've got to set the baseline of what is and isn't appropriate in sport. Mm. And that's all sports. So for gymnastics, the gymnastics athletes, professionals, right? They're, and they're doing it. Yes. They have to come together, right? Because they know better than I do. I know the trainings, the education, how to respond or investigate. I don't know what is necessarily appropriate for a, a level six gymnast, you know, gymnast to do on rope climbs or push-ups or on the uneven bars, right? right? I lean on those who have lived that in their life, those gymnast ex and experts in that space. That's what we have to do. So mm-hmm. I think you're exactly <clears throat> right. It is difficult, but we can do better in defining what is emotional, what is physical abuse in the sports world. I tell people all the time, I think the centers put together a fantastic code of conduct in the safe sport code, and it will define out what the center has said this is at least the baseline of what emotional and physical abuse is, right? Like it has no, it's punitive or it has no coaching or educational or training purpose, right? Like a coach gets mad and screams and throws things or says, you know, I don't want to look at you, you know, run until you throw up, things like that. And so we're getting better at defining it, but we got a lot of work to do. So how about this nuance to that then? So everything we've talked about now is people within a team or within an organization. What about the parents of these minors where they're pushing their kids so hard and a coach might say, see the way that they're treating them on the sidelines? Like I've seen parents of Little League football grab their kid by the face mask and yank them up to him and say, you better get your ass moving, right? Like that kind of thing. Is that part of what you're working on educating as well, the parent side of this? hundred percent, right? A foundation of what is abusive conduct needs to go across the board, meaning coaches, athletes, parents, administrators, any professional with ties to sports. That is how you set up abuse prevention, right? Is by building an understanding. Because a lot of the times, I will tell you, a lot of the times I saw emotional or physical misconduct. It was not coming from a place of ill intent. Mm. It was coming from a place of lack of understanding, right? The intent versus the impact argument. They did not understand what the impact was on their child or one of their athletes. And you go back and you're like, ask them why? Well, that's how I was trained. That's how I was coached. It worked for me. That's, that's an argument I still hear today, right? Sure. And so building that foundational understanding, not only so the parents understand what they're doing may be, problematic but so they also have the tools to recognize maybe the coaches of their young athletes are taking it a step too far right so building that foundational base across the board is one of the things that i kind of yell from the rooftops of we have to start here we have to just openly accept that abuse education right and what i mean by that is 
how to recognize warning signs of abuse, right? If, if a, a child or young adult or someone is potentially being abused physically, emotionally, sexually, recognizing that, right? Recognizing or understanding what to do in situations like bystander intervention. What do you do if you see something, right? What are the next steps for you to take? Those types of trainings, I tell people, are just fundamentally so important. And one of the things I, I really just get on the soapbox about is my mission or one of those missions is to help people understand that we should be looking at abuse training, so abuse prevention training, in the same context as we see CPR and basic life-saving skills. I tell people that because I hear the argument a lot as, well, look, I coach my kid's team. So there's no, there's no concern about abuse. I would never abuse my own kid. I would never abuse anybody else's kid. Okay. I don't have kids in sport and I'm like, I get it. I understand that. But what I'm telling you is just like CPR training, if you get this training, if you by happenstance ever need it, meaning you recognize some kid that may be subjected to some level of abuse and that training clicks in your head and you recognize it, you will have a, you will just, you will have a profoundly positive impact on somebody's life. It's the same for CPR training, right? And basic life-saving skills. I'm not CPR trained, so I can go out there looking for, expecting someone to choke, right? I use it so that I get that training, I stay certified so that if I ever do need it. That you can save a life. Absolutely. And I'm telling you right now that the, um, the positive impact you can have on somebody's life by recognizing or preventing abuse can be profound. Mm. The studies we're doing today are just, they're, they're, they're just so disheartening. I, I was reading a study and, you know, I'm a, I'm a data, I geek out on data. I love it. I love these scientific studies. I've just gone full force in the sporting world and the abuse and the trauma. Most victims of sexual abuse delay disclosure. We know that they don't. By how long? Four decades. Is no the kidding. 40 years, 40 years. The most common disclosure happens when the victim of that abuse is in their fifties. So think about what the trauma of the abuse and then living with that burden for four decades mm -mm. before you tell anybody. Does that mean that most abuse occurs in the decade between 10 and 20? Absolutely. The most commonly abused individual, female 13 to 17. Mm. That is what we see the most victims of sexual abuse, 13 to 17 year old females. So that we're back to sexual abuse. Yeah, sexual again. abuse. Okay. Now, what we know when it comes to physical and emotional abuse is 40 to 50% of athletes experience some type of abuse before they're 18. So we know. Now, that I'm not telling you that 50, 40 to 50% of athletes experience sexual abuse before they're 18. It is lower than that, it's much lower for sexual abuse. It's 40 to 50% when you talk about emotional and physical. The delayed disclosure, it's very difficult to talk about emotional and physical because it's very underreported. Right. Because it, there's a lack of understanding out there of what is emotional abuse, what is physical abuse. We just don't see it. And the athlete often. might not even consider it abuse. Like that's the culture within the locker room. And so that's just what we do. Absolutely. That is, again, where that foundational knowledge comes in so much, right? What is abuse? How do you recognize it, right? What are the warning signs? We've got to get better. Like, you know, and I tell people, you talk about safe spaces, right? When you talk about disclosure of abuse, you got to find they, like, this is a safe place, space, safe space, find a safe space. We can, we need to work towards having to our, our society is a safe space. I don't like the idea of a survivor living in a society where they, for a number of reasons where they feel like there may be shame or stigma associated with it, aren't comfortable 
coming forward for four decades, right? right. So that's, you know, again, these numbers are just mind-boggling Insane. to me. Yes. Is there a widespread or a measured level of this abuse among teammates? So especially you got the high school kids where you got the seniors and the freshmen and the hazing thing. And, you know, I don't know how, how high the scale goes. Like, Absolutely. does that, I don't know if that starts at six, seven, eight, nine, or if it really proliferates in high school where now you got the size differences, does it continue into college? And then even in the pros, you got different personal, personality style athletes, right? Like some, Absolutely. they're all alphas at that level, but some alphas express differently than another. And they want you to know if it's me or you, I'm going to dominate you. Like what's the athlete to athlete incidence of abuse? It's significant, right? And what I call that is peer to peer abuse, peer to peer, right? And there, first off, there can be power imbalances, even peer to peer, right? And you hinted at it, team captain, senior versus freshman, right? And anytime there is a power imbalance, there is the potential for some level of misconduct. And we see, especially in team sports, in locker rooms, peer to peer abuse, certainly high among, you know, young males that is, you know, part of the culture, unfortunately, in a lot of locker rooms. So peer-to-peer abuse is a significant part of abuse within the sport world that is under-recognized and potentially easier to prevent, right? And what I mean by that is peer-to-peer abuse most often happens when there's a lack of oversight, right? Youth tend to be opportunistic in their abuse. They are not what we call preferential predators. They don't have a type where you have a 40-year-old man or woman who is attracted to a specific type of, you know, 13-year-old, 12-year-old. They tend to be more opportunistic and engaging in some type of misconduct when there isn't supervision. Right. right? And so I tell people all the time, recognizing the level of peer-to-peer abuse, whether that is minor to minor, adult to adult, can be really mitigated by just implementing some appropriate supervision protocols throughout the sport, right? So good. You know, it brings me back, literally as we were talking through this, it took me back to my high school locker room, right? Football player. And I can remember being on both sides of this as as an underclassman than an upperclassman where I, my nature was never to pick on kids, right? My, that's just not my nature, but I would watch kids take towels and whip them up and then make that thing. And if two kids want to go at it, that's one thing. But if one kid is getting that and like, look, I'm not playing, I don't, I don't want to be part of this and are doing it. I now look at that from our conversation, like this kid's, uh, you know, acting in an act of abuse towards this other kid, yeah. typically weaker and or younger. Yeah. I mean, if you look at it and somebody like the CDC, mm-hmm. right, defines like emotional abuse as abuse that has an impact on like their, their mental well-being, right? And something like that certainly could not alone the physical, yeah. you know, the injuries that it causes. And your, your discussion in the locker room is perfect in peer-to-peer abuse. And one of the things that I do in my private practice, one of the things, again, that I really focus on is how can we empower those teammates, youth, to step in and stop it, right? And what we call bystander intervention and the bystander effect where, you know, it's like, okay, somebody else will stop it. Somebody else will step in. It's not my place. How do we empower youth, give them the training to say that, look, you can make a difference. You can step in, you know, whether it's in the hallways of your school, whether it's in the locker room or the cafeteria, we can equip you with the tools to have an understanding of what a potential abusive situation is and what steps you can take to prevent it, to stop it, to maybe keep it from happening again. And it all goes back to what kind of impact are you going to have 
on that individual's life that is being subjected to that type of misconduct. And so, again, I think that's one of the things that I focus on is not all that foundational education. Bystander intervention is so important, right? You know, a lot of the abuse that was occurring, I think this was a study out of the UK that was talking through sexual abuse among elite level athletes. So many of them said that the bystander effect came into play, right? That nobody said anything, even though they saw it because they were waiting on somebody else to do something, or they were mm. saying, well, it's not, not for me to do this. Somebody else will come in and stop it. Right. How do we empower those individuals to understand like you can stop it? And if you do, again, the impact can be massive, not only from an individual standpoint, but like you were saying early from a cultural standpoint, if people start to step up and say, this doesn't have like, stop it. This doesn't have a place in our locker room it starts to shift the culture because so, so much of this behavior is repeated, right? That freshman that you saw that was getting the towel snaps, when he becomes an upperclassman, does he engage in the same type of behavior because it's what happened to him? Right. Hazing, so, like in the college campus, right? Absolutely. Can we, yeah. So how do we break that cycle? And again, there's a lot of ways to do it. One of the key components to me is, again, education within that team, that peer-to-peer -peer, and empowering those individuals to understand you can make a difference. And that difference will not only have a big impact on that individual or those individuals being you know, subjected to misconduct, but it could potentially change that team culture and dynamic for the better that long, that lasts long after you have you know, left yeah. the halls of your high school or college. I love that. Let's transition to yeah. your company, Safe Sport Matters. You've alluded to it. And yeah. so let's talk about what the role that you play with your team in order to help organizations at whatever level. I'm assuming these could be mom and pop organizations like Pop Warner, Little, little League footballs, um, PAL leagues, all the way to organized high schools and maybe even Olympic level or outside of the Olympic system, but now into even up into professional. What, what do you guys do and how do you do it? You're exactly right. So the brainchild of that is Safe Sport Matters really came up with me and my partner, Mark Flynn, when we noticed that the U.S. Center for Safe Sport is doing great work in its lane, and its lane is the Olympic movement. And I already told you that that can be 10 to 12 million people. It's a big lane. So I don't want to think, I don't want you thinking it's a small lane. Yeah. But we know that a conservative estimate is 25 million youth play sports in this country every year. The 10 to 12 million in the Olympic movement is not just youth. So we know there are tens of millions of youth that don't have the resource that is the Olympic movement, right? Exactly what you're talking about. You know, high school athletics, college athletics, maybe the all those athletics that exist outside the Olympic movement. Those gaps where I learned, you know, I'm like, look, I've made a big difference on this Olympic movement. I can say that proudly. Now, how can I take what I've learned and expand it? And that's exactly what it was. And so we said, we're going to start and we're going to help these organizations that don't necessarily have the center as a great resource, right? The Pop Warner football that's outside the Olympic movement, right? Parks and Recs department, which are outside the Olympic movement, but maybe running dozens of, you know, youth leagues, things of that nature. You serving organizations that, you know, have after school care programs that have sports involved, all of those types of things. So it's like, what can we do for them? to make sure that they have as safe of an environment possible. And do you do that through live coaching, through videos, through books? Like, is it a kind of a multimedia approach to helping get the standard of care, so to speak, out there? Absolutely. So I like in-person or virtual, like hands-on. Mm -hmm. I want to like do whatever I can to help you. So we do 
a couple different things for organizations, right? We do their investigations if they need someone to come in and say, hey, we got an allegation of abuse. We need a professional to come in and investigate it. But what we also do and what we do even more than the investigations is exactly what you're talking about. Policy review and development, right? I tell people all the time, like, that's, you know, a great step in the right direction. If you have up-to-date policies and procedures, let us help you get those policies and procedures in place. Like, let it, We'll review them for you. We will draft and help you work with your organization to get as up-to-date of policies and procedures that, you know, abide by best practices and current standards training. I could not talk about how important training is, right? And do that, you know, on-site or virtual on a number of different topics, right? I have clients who, I don't know what to do when someone calls me and they say that abuse is taking place, right? It's intake type training versus, again, how do you recognize, what are the warning signs of abuse? How do you recognize that as a parent, as a coach, as someone involved in an organization? I love bystander intervention training, right? How do, you know, let me empower your staff, your, you know, your students, your athletes to understand what they can do. Right? Do you guys do an audit? Like, let's say an organization comes to you and says, or maybe even a team, maybe someone hears this podcast that's a coach of a, a team and they're like, man, I want to do this. I want to learn about this. Then would you go, okay, here's our first process. we got to see what we can find and learn. And based on that, we're going to recommend because like. You can't learn everything that you've shared. It's not a one-time deal. It has to be like a series of ongoing events, trainings, uh, you know, kind of warm-ups to what you've done before and rehashes, right? Am, am I on track you there? Absolutely are, right? And you talk about what I tell people all the time is I like this kind of three-pronged approach when I think of sports safety, right? And this is, you know, right up what the center is, individual accountability, which is that investigative part, right? If somebody has alleged misconduct, prevention and education. And that is not, like you said, a one-time thing. A one-hour training is a step in the right direction. But I want people, again, to get more and more involved. I want people to understand how big of an impact they can have, buy into that. And then organizational accountability, exactly what you're talking about. Do you have the right policies in place? Do you have the right procedures in place to make sure those policies are followed? Are you actually doing that, right? Having a team on site to audit not only current policies and procedures, but are they being followed? It is this, you know, trying to bring a holistic approach to it to say, all of these are necessary to create the safe sport environment that we really want, right? Everybody who participates should be able to participate free of abuse. And it's not just a check the box, right? Mm -hmm. I do not abide by, oh, I did my one hour training. I'm checking that box. I'm good to go. This is an investment period. You're, you're developing a culture, exactly. a culture of safety in that sport, in that locker room. And if you do that, if you're willing to, you know, to invest time in training your coaches into what appropriate training practices are and coaching techniques. So they, you know, are positively impacting the life of those individuals. If you're willing to work with professionals in the space to develop policies and procedures that create as safe of an environment possible, right? If you educate and work with your parents to make sure they have the knowledge base that they need, which not only helps them, but also brings in accountability to the organization. I love it when parents have a knowledge base and they can go to the organization and go like, what are we doing for safe sport, right? How are we preventing one-on-one -on -one interactions between adult coaches and adult minors? What safeguards do we have in place? Again, it goes back to that. And it's, again, you got to get buy-in. We do that by creating a culture, right? And it, it is not a one-off check the box. It takes investment. You will never convince me that that investment is not worth it. I agree a thousand percent. It, it reminds me of something 
that uh, is a totally different topic, but a similar concept. And that is, we live, my wife and I, and we live in the mountains, right? And in our home, which is, uh, you know, near a place called Conifer up, the, up yeah. the road here, there's a lot of trees and there's a lot of people. And when you get trees and people together in heat, hot and dry times, you get fires. And so it just so happens that our neighborhood is considered one of the top fire risk danger neighborhoods in the, in the country, in America. And so um, there's a group called Firewise that has Firewise safety training. And so basically as a neighborhood, we've decided to try to mitigate our properties for fire, make sure that you know we do this and that. And so then there's this program. And at the end of the day, there's a badge of honor when on our little blackboard as you enter into the building where, you know, hey, we can babysit your dog or we have firewood or whatever. It, there was a thing that said we qualify as a firewise safe neighborhood. I imagine that there's something that a team could really grab hold of in the parents of the kids in that team or the locker room of a professional team if they could say, you know, we've gone through this program and it's you know, we've done the levels. We're a black belt, if you will. Yeah. Like, and it's going to be something that passes down from coach to coach, athlete to athlete, peer to peer, because those people change. The athletes age out, the coaches move, right? All that stuff. So when that becomes the culture, now that's where I think these long-term changes that you're talking about take place. Yeah, real changes, right? Changes that last longer than us, yes. right? Like, especially in athletics, people move on and they move out quick right? Like high school, what are you there? Four years, yep. three, depending when I was in high school, it yeah. was three, it was 10, 11 That's and 12, true. right? Yeah. You're not there for very long. Coaches move on as well, right? If you're successful at the high school level, you go to a bigger high school, maybe you go to college, you know, there's all kinds. And so, yeah, so creating that culture goes well beyond take pride in it, right? That's what I tell people, take pride in the investment you're making in safety, right? Not just because it's going to protect your child, but because being a part of this safety culture, is going to extend well beyond and you're going to just absolutely exponentially magnify the impact that you are potentially having on people's lives and i promise you there all we know about trauma and the negative impacts that these things have on people's lives lifelong issues like i said never going to convince me it's not an investment worth making and again take pride in it right i agree completely you know show that you're a part of an organization that takes these extra steps, these steps that no one requires, even though they're necessary, right? Take pride in it. Absolutely. We, I've had guests on this show that are talking about bullying, right? And one from the sense of, um, you know, similar to you, an expert, and what does it look like with mental health and emotional health and bullying? But one, an attorney at our very firm, very incredible attorney, who shared his story of being bullied and what yeah. part that played. And he's he still feels the, the sting of that now as a full-grown man making big changes in the world as, a, as an yeah. attorney. And so I think what the message that we can all get from this is if you put these pieces in place, not only do you know who you might be saving from an issue today, but how you may impact their life and their quality of life tomorrow and what they do to their next generation. Like you said, you know, in, in the abuse world, it's so common that abused kids have parents that were abused kids. It is unfortunate, right? You know, and that's what we talk about, that cycle of abuse where people who are abused, you know, the hazing is a great example. It just continues. And how we break that, right? And how we create a culture in sporting worlds and organizations, again, that that should be making 
really positive impacts on kids' lives, right? right. And we can still be tough, right? There can, you can still have grueling practices with yes. incredible discipline, but don't cross the line. 100%. There's a way to do that. Absolutely. There is a way to be great at sports, still get all of that discipline, all of that direction that we you know, love to say sports can provide, but do it in a way where we're not having lasting negative impacts on these kids' lives because it happens, right? I've seen it. I've seen it from emotional, physical, and sexual abuse on these athletes all having dramatically negative impacts. That's not what sports are. That's not what any of us want out of sports, right? And yeah, I think we can we can get there. And I tell people all the time that like, that education, you know, there's I work with organizations to here's your education base, right? Like what we were talking about. Here is your screening policies to help you know make a better environment. Here are your policies and procedures. Here's your oversight. You know, all of these things that really play together to make the safest environment possible. That hopefully, I always tell people if you get buy-in from the organization, and it kind of it goes down the whole organization sees it they want to be a part of it you see that systemic change that cultural change and all of a sudden they don't they don't allow that type of conduct it's a safe space so you have not only really productive and successful athletes but when they leave they don't have that lasting negative impact that some have instead they're more like somebody who was lucky enough like me that looks back with a lot of you know yeah i love sports a lot of gratitude i love you know those people that were involved in my life fantastic right that's what i want for everybody and again i think as a society knowing that tens of millions of kids play sports every year that we know like i i look at studies where they were looking at like anywhere from 38 to 72 percent of athletes are subjected to emotional abuse mm. 9 to 30 percent sexual abuse 11 to 21 percent physical abuse those numbers are unacceptable right we can do better Let's do it. Let's do yeah. better. How do you do better, right? And those are the things that my organization and organizations like the U.S. Center for Safe Sport, organizations you know, in other parts of the, the country and the globe, right, Canada, the U.K., we're starting to come to terms with abuse in sport, and we, we got to do better. We do. And, Bobby, you are doing great things, and I'm sure you work nationally. And so with your national footprint and what you're doing. If people wanted that, that watch or listen to this, want to reach out and get a hold of you, what would be the best way for them to learn more or to see, maybe I can apply this to my team. How would they go about connecting with you? You know, shoot me an email. Uh, it's bclick at emfig.com, right? And so shoot me an email, you know, go to emfig.com, the website, take a look, right? I tell people all the time, I want to be a resource. If it's just a quick email because you just want to have a, a five-minute chat about a question that's in the back of your mind about sports safety, call me, right? Email me because I want to be a resource. I want to take what I've learned, you know, through years of practicing law that included defending individuals that were accused or ultimately convicted of engaging in sexual abuse defending organizations that had employees or volunteers or staff members who were alleged of engaging in abuse for you know vulnerable populations to taking that and applying it to sport what i've learned is saying i can be a change maker right we can we can turn this into a social enterprise where we make a difference so i tell people all the time i love to talk 
I love it. Just give me a buzz. You know, nice. re- look at the website, reach out to me via email, and I will do everything I can do to put you in a position to be successful in the safety world, meaning have a safe environment for your organization, help you understand what is potentially abuse, all of those things. I want to share what I know with as many people, which is why I love and am appreciative of coming on organ, you know, podcasts like this to get the message out there of how important this is, right? How much of a problem is out there, but that doesn't mean, you know, it may seem like an impossible task at points, but I, I can tell you it's not. And we can do better. We are doing better. And I just want to keep the movement going. I want to keep the sports safety movement going for as long as I'm here. Like I said, it's just become the mission of, you know, an Alabama lawyer who somehow transitioned to Denver, has a couple kids in sports, and, you know, I'll do everything I can to make it safer for everybody. Oh, man. Well, that is a beautiful message. And, Bobby, one more question for you. If there was a piece of advice that you've learned along the way through all this journey or that someone gave you that is just fundamental in how you do your life, what would that advice be so that we could all learn from that as well? That's a great question. I'll take it to a quote from, you've already heard I'm a big sports fan, right? So Muhammad Ali, I'll take it out of football. You know, service to others is the rent we pay for our space here on earth. Ooh, that's good. So it's a good quote. It's room here on earth. I always say space, but Muhammad Ali had a fantastic quote. And what I try to live by now, and there were even, you know, back as a public defender, what I'm doing now, even though it seemed like impossible task is, you can make a difference, right? You can have an impact. And that is a lot of what the message is that you will see as a theme through trainings and education and policies and procedures that I'm helping people develop. Don't underestimate, don't diminish what you can do as an individual or as an organization, right? The bystander intervention type training, having the policies and procedures, right? As we empower people, it'll just start to create the culture that we want. So don't diminish what you can do to make a difference in somebody's life. That's awesome. Well, this has been a treat for me, a complete joy. Thank you so much for what you do for our kids, our adults, everything that you're doing, and just know that you are making a difference. No, I've loved being here. I thank you so much for giving me the opportunity. And for those of you watching or listening, I hope you enjoyed this. I know, again, there was some stuff that is not easy to talk about, but it's real. And so I hope that you'll share this message, send it to people that you know that are involved or that can make a difference. And until next time, I want you also to keep making a difference.